Amen. Just before Stephen comes, a word to those watching on the live stream. We can't show Stephen's face on the live stream this morning, so we'll be going straight to the PowerPoint. So you'll be following along, not seeing his face, but seeing the PowerPoint. Hopefully you'll be able to track with it okay. Stephen, thank you. Good morning. Good morning, church. A real blessing to be with you all this morning. Thanks so much to Pastor Steve for his extremely warm welcome. Uh, those of you who were here last night would have heard a little bit more than what uh, I'm perhaps going to share today. We looked at a number of different countries around the world where Christians, just like all of you guys, okay, please don't think of them as, as being any different. They've, they've got one head, two arms, two legs, all followers of Yeshua, of Jesus. And yet, in so many countries, they can't attend church the way we can here today. And we looked at that last night in various countries, North Korea, Pakistan, Nigeria, Malaysia, and all those various different countries. So I'm not going to, to go through that uh, again this morning. What I want to do is just very quickly introduce some of you to the mission that I have the privilege of serving with. It's called Release International, as you see on the screen there. Uh, it was founded under the inspiration of this man. Uh, he's called Pastor Richard Vermbrandt. He's, he's passed away now, but Pastor Vermbrandt was a, a pastor in Romania during the Ceausescu regime, for those of you who remember that or for those of you who are familiar with your history books. It was communism, and communism wants to eradicate any form of faith, whether that be Islam, whether that be Hinduism or Christianity or, or whatever. And the government, the authorities came to Pastor Vermbrandt and they says, you've got to stop preaching this Jesus. He's a myth. And Pastor Vermbrandt said, what else can I do? He has saved me, given me these words to speak to the people. And so he continued to preach. And they came along one day as he was walking down the street and they bundled him into a car and they took him away to a prison. He wasn't charged with anything. He was just shut up in prison. Fourteen years he suffered in solitary confinement. And for four of those years, they put electricity through his body. They took pliers and they ripped off little bits of flesh every now and again. They hung him upside down and they beat his feet in stocks with iron bars. And all of this for one reason. If he had have said, Jesus is a myth, or I no longer believe in Jesus, they would have let him walk out the door. But he refused. 14 years. It's not a challenge for us. I don't know if I could have done it. Could you? 14 years. He refused to deny Jesus. After those 14 years in which he should have been dead, you can read about that in his book, Tortured for Christ, he was able to get out, and part of that then was able to form the inspiration behind uh, Release International and other various groups that we work alongside, Voice of the Martyrs and, and different ones around the world. This is part of, of what we do as part of, of our ministry. We're trying to raise awareness to the persecution of believers around the world. Now, please hear me right that I, I could stand here and tell you lots of bad stories uh, and get your, your hopes down and your spirits low, yet I want to encourage you as well because I want to encourage you to pray for those people. We looked last night at Hebrews 13 and 3, where the writer encourages the believers to remember those in prison as if you were in prison with them. 
and those who suffer as if you too were suffering with them. And so that's our encouragement for the church in the West. Remember those in prison in other countries, because all that happened in the first century to the early disciples, the apostles, read about it in your history books, none of them died a nice death. Perhaps apart from John, we believe, probably had a a natural death. The rest were all martyred brutally. Was it because they broke speeding limits or they beat someone up? No, it was because they were followers of Jesus. It's the only reason. And so the same is true today in 2022. Followers around the world are suffering in those same ways, and that's part of the way that we do there. You'll see one other there just on the screen, just one before the bottom, and it's about discipleship. And we hear this word, don't we, an awful lot, discipleship, about making disciples, and I think it's a word that's been overused, but at the same time, it's critically important. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, it's to walk in His footsteps. Well, look at the life of Jesus. Did Jesus walk a life where everybody loved Him and where He went into places and they praised Him and gave Him lots of money? And that that wasn't the life of Jesus, was it? Is that the Jesus that you read about in your Scriptures? Because if we're walking in His footsteps, if we're following Him as disciples, then we need to learn from Jesus, but we can also learn from believers in other countries what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because the world hated me first, Jesus said. You know this verse, don't you? They will hate you too. He's talking to all his disciples of all time. But that doesn't mean a lot to us in the West, does it? Be honest. How many of us here face any sort of trouble? I think the worst that most of us will face for putting our hands up and saying, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, is that someone might laugh at us. That's probably the worst that'll happen in the West. And yet, for believers in other countries, everything from laughing, ridicule, discrimination, intolerance, imprisonment, right through to being killed for the sake of Jesus. We've so much to learn uh, from them. These are other areas just that uh, we minister into, the four focuses that we have about those who have to flee for their lives in different countries. You could be looking at Iran. You could be looking at Iraq. You could be looking at various different countries. Uh, Secondly there, uh, those who suffer from oppression. There are governments that oppress Christians in various countries, but there are communities that oppress Christians in various countries. And there are also families that oppress Christians in various countries. So, let me ask you a question. Does your family oppress you for being a believer or a follower of Jesus? I I don't think in the West that's true. And yet, I've met many believers in various countries who have had to run for their lives because mom and dad wanted to kill them. Can you believe that? Mom and dad wanted to kill son and daughter. It happens. One of the other ones is about the martyrs, and then finally about prisoners. There are prisoners of faith, as we call them, all over the world. People who are imprisoned just simply for being a follower of Jesus. Are there any in the UK? No. But are there prisoners of faith in North Korea today? Yes. Are there prisoners of faith in Iran today? Yes. Are there prisoners of faith in Indonesia today? Yes. And the list could go on and on. And so, part of the privilege that I have is to be able to share with you what's going on in other countries, not so that you'll feel sorry for these believers, 
but that you will, do you remember what we said about Hebrews 13 and 3? Remember them as if you were there too. Remember them in prayer, because the same God that we are here to praise today, we've all been singing. Now, have you been singing to the wall, or have you been singing to each other, or have you been singing to the chairs? I, I hope not. I hope you're singing to the invisible God who's here with us, but it's the same God who's with us today that's with believers in India, in Australia, in the States, wherever it might be. It's the same God, the same God. We're going to look just at Psalm 27. It's been read for us earlier. Can I encourage you to look it up? I want to encourage you just through Psalm 27. I know that the teaching here in Great Victoria Street Baptist is excellent through Pastor Steve. So I hope that you're hungry regularly for the Word of God, and I want to open up a little bit to you today, and I hope that you get a little bit of that hunger satisfied, God willing that He anoints what is said and that you've got ears to hear. As you're looking up Psalm 27, let me give you a little bit of background to it. Psalm 27 was written by David, and for those of you hopefully that know, David was king of Israel. So you've got to get that into your head. This psalm, okay, was written by the king. It just wasn't written by, you know, anybody. It was written by the king, the king of Israel. Possibly written whenever David's son, Absalom, tried to take over the throne and David had to flee. That's possibly where it was, and it does fit in certainly with what's said there. But the things that are really brought out here are, are three things, and that's what I want to look at today. I want to look, first of all, at the confidence of the psalmist, of David, the confidence that we see in this particular psalm. And then I want to look at the prayer, because part of it seems to be a prayer, and it's the prayer of the psalmist. And then finally, I want to look at the assurance that the psalmist then gives. And I don't want all of this just to be words on a page. These words are written for us, that we might grow that we might take comfort, that we might be strengthened, that we might see who God is. And so often believers, I, I think, in the West in particular, disassociate the Old Testament and the New Testament, and yet the Old Testament's full of who our God is. It's full of echoes of the Messiah to come, Jesus, who we trust and believe in. And so we need to put the two together and see all of the connections, and I hope you do see that here whenever we read this. And I hope you're encouraged because David, in this psalm, is going through a trial. You'll hear many, many people, and you'll see it on your TV screens, you'll see it on the internet, you'll read it on YouTube, etc., etc., saying to you that when you become a believer in Jesus, everything will be great. You'll have lots of money. Your health will be fantastic. Your life will be absolutely ecstatic. But that's not what the Scriptures teach. And I hope you see that from the life of David. David's not saying, if you come to know God, Jehovah, as he declares here, that your life will be absolutely fantastic. Yes, there is joy. Yes, there should be rejoicing. Yes, there should be abundant life. Jesus talks about all that. But with all of that, and it's scattered from Genesis right through to Revelation, there is joy, but there is suffering for the people of God that goes together. And the world will look upon suffering as being way over there, and joy as being way over there, and the two don't meet. And yet, I find when I read the Scriptures that actually both come together. The joy of the Lord is the strength of the people, Nehemiah declares. And yet, look 
at the suffering of Jesus and His disciples and the people of God. Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 here, he declares from the very start about who God is. This is what David says. He says, the Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? First of all, I want to uh, really point out to you, when you see the term Lord, L-O-R-D, in capital letters, you do know that that's God's special name, don't you? I I think the word Lord has lost an awful lot of the importance. When you see this in the Scriptures, L-O-R-D in capital letters is the special name for God given to Moses way back in the Old Testament before this time. It's when God reveals His special name. We translate it and we understand it as being I am. And that's okay, but again, I think that's quite weak because it's the special name of God. The Jewish Bible, I think, translates it a little bit better. The Jewish translation is that I was, I am, and I will be. That's the name of God, what it means. Do you get that? It's the eternal God. He's always been here. He is here now, and He will be there long into the future. In fact, when we're gone, He'll still be there. That's the God. That's the Jehovah, if you like. And that's how the English translations have made it into Jehovah. Uh, We could go into Yahweh and and various other things as well. We don't have time for that today, but it's the special name of God, and I think there's beauty in that. And the psalmist says, the Lord is my light, first of all. Notice that he doesn't say, the Lord or Jehovah God is a light, okay? He says, he is my light, my light. He's the truth. He's the joy for the believer. And David is echoing this, and he's trying to encourage the people, okay? He's the king. All the people underneath him are hearing this psalm. They're being encouraged and instructed. And he's saying to them, Jehovah God, the creator of the whole universe, he's not just a light, he's my light. He's our light. And that's what he's saying. He goes on then to say that he is the salvation. He is my salvation as well. I think in in Northern Ireland, we uh, often use this word salvation, again, I think slightly loosely. The salvation that we see in the Old Testament is all about deliverance. It's about rescue. Salvation, right, as if we go right back to the people of God. Remember in the time of Egypt, whenever they were delivered, they were saved, redeemed from there. They were brought out and rescued. And so the psalmist, and that's what salvation is saying here, He is our rescuer. He is our deliverer. And David is saying that now because of all that he's been through. And the third thing, uh, there's a three-pronged thing, if you like, here, uh, light, salvation. And then he also says that the Lord, in verse 1, is the stronghold of my life. The stronghold is like a refuge. So do you see what, what David's saying here? Okay, this is the confidence that he has in his God. Not only is God, His light. Not only is God His salvation, God is His refuge. What's a refuge? It's somewhere that we can run to and take protection and shielding from. And David knows that more than anybody. And so, the question that's coming out then of the Scriptures is, what about you? Is there something or someone you need protection from? Do you need to run from something or someone? Do you need encouragement to know that He's the light, and in His light, He gives us truth and joy. In His salvation, He rescues, He delivers us, 
And then because he's a stronghold, he is their refuge as well. That's basically what we're seeing here in the shield being a hope. And then in verse 2, look, he goes on to say, when evil doers assail me and eat up my flesh, etc., etc., what David's doing here is he's remembering, okay, what happened in the past. And the things that happened in the past are the things that encourages him in the current. And so, I do believe that God often tells us that we need to remember what happened in the past. Remember, he says so often to the people in the Old Testament, remember whenever I redeemed you from Israel. Look at the psalmists and how many times they talk about that. God's always saying, remember back. Don't forget, I'm still the God who was then, and I am now, and I will be in the future. Do you remember the name of Jehovah God? And so he's saying that. David is echoing that as well. And he's saying, I remember God whenever you delivered me. You rescued me from my enemies. You know the story of David, don't you? He was a shepherd boy, and many, many times he had to fight off animals, and so he's remembering God delivering him. And then he came out of the fields, didn't he? And he came up against a a huge giant in the form of Goliath, and of course, Goliath beat David, didn't he? No, he didn't. Little David beat Goliath because God was with him. And so he remembers, yeah, God, you delivered me from Goliath as well. And then do you remember whenever David was about to be made king and Saul was king and Saul turned on him and he had to run and flee and he had to hide in caves. He had to hide in the desert. He ran for his life. And God protected and delivered him. God was his light. God was his salvation. God was his refuge. Do you see all that David's doing? He's remembering back to give him encouragement in the here and now. And that's for us too, if you're struggling today. Remember what God has done in the past. Remember what he says through his word to encourage you in whatever it is that you're going through. And I need to do that so often myself. Look at what he says in verse 2, actually. He says, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. So when he says to eat up my flesh, do you see that he's actually almost saying that his, his enemies or those who would track him down are like animals? Does that, does that make sense? He's saying they're like animals. They're trying to eat up my flesh. And part of what the Scriptures talk about there particularly whenever they say, my adversaries and foes, they stumble and fall. That eat up my flesh is, is actually slightly badly translated, although it is still a good concept, but it means about slandering. And this is something I think believers we need to be extremely careful of in this day and age. You see, the evil one who wants to destroy, who wants to do everything opposite to what David has said about light, salvation, and refuge. The enemy wants to do the opposite of all that. And one of his ways is through slander. And we treat this, I think, very, very loosely and very lightly. But if you read the Scriptures, you'll see throughout the whole of the Old Testament when it talks about the enemy, how he slanders, how he slandered Job. Do you remember that? Go into the New Testament. See how he slanders as well. It's all part of his tactics. Paul says it's not flesh and blood we're fighting against. It's powers, principalities, 
And because we live in the West and we're very scientific and we try to reason everything out, we don't grasp this. But the powers the enemy is using all the time is people's tongues and lips. Because the words that we say can tear people down just like that. And so, the evildoers here, the ones who eat up his flesh, are the slanderers of David. Please don't give praise to the enemy by using these lips to slander. Give praise to God with these lips. That's what he's given us them for. Look in the next uh, verse then. He says, one thing in verse 4, sorry, I have asked of the Lord. This is lovely because it shows David's sort of singleness, if you like, of heart. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord or of Jehovah that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of Jehovah all the days of my life. And then listen to this, and to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. One thing David says, the one thing that I want, you see, he's single in his mindset. One thing that he wants, not lots of things. One thing is to dwell in the house of God. That really means he just wants intimacy with his God all the time, because that's the place where God dwelt with his people in the Old Testament. And David wanted to be there all the time. So, here's the question again, is that your desire? to be intimate with Jehovah God, because that's what the psalmist is urging you to do, and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He mentions this temple here. You'll see that uh, at the very end of verse 4, and he actually refers to the, the, the temple or the dwelling place of God as a refuge in four different places, actually. He refers to it as a house. Do you see in verse 4, in the second line, he says, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. I hope you see that. So, the house is the dwelling place of God, okay, Jehovah God. That's the first place that he mentions it. At the end of verse 4, then, he says, and to inquire in his temple. The temple hadn't been built at this stage, okay, because David didn't build the temple. It was Solomon. But he has a vision a desire to see this confirmed in Jerusalem. No longer a tent, but a physical building. That's his desire. And so, he says he wants to be in that place, the temple as well. Verse 5, then he says, for he will make, he will hide me in his shelter, or his tabernacle is another way of actually saying that. The tabernacle was designed, you know, from, by Moses, and brought and traveled throughout the uh, desert place. Well, at this particular time, it's not with David in Jerusalem. The tabernacle, if you read the Scriptures, is in a place called Gibeon. It hasn't been moved there yet. The Ark of the Covenant is the only thing that was moved to Jerusalem at that particular time. And so, he's referring back to his love of that tabernacle, Moses' building for God. He then refers to also um, it as a tent. Verse 5 again, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. The reason he says tent here is because David had created a tent, okay, to replace the tabernacle in Jerusalem where he set the Ark of the Covenant. All right, this is maybe complicated for you, but there's no temple built at this stage, okay, and the tabernacle that Moses had is in Gibeon. It's a way, way in a different place. So, David in God's place, Jerusalem, 
erects a tent and puts the ark in it. And that's why he refers here to the tent. But they're all referring to the same place. And then finally, he talks about a rock. End of verse 5, he will lift me upon a rock, another place that God dwelt with his people. Remember, David was hiding from Saul. He was going through various caves, and he was on a rock, and that was the place that he met with God. And so he's referring all these places, the shelter, the tent, the temple, whatever it might be, all of them back to dwelling with his God. Intimacy. That's what he desires. That's what he's encouraging all of us to do as well. I think we're seeing very much the confidence of God, I hope, there. The second thing I wanted to point out was the prayer. We see here in verse 7, a slight change. As we're starting to look into verse 7, the psalmist then says, Hear, O God, or O Jehovah, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me. And one of the commentators has said that here we see the triumphant strain of confidence in the first six verses gives way to one of sadness and earnest entreaty. It's almost as if David, who in the first few verses has been filling all of his listeners, and us included, with confidence, is all of a sudden now becoming a little downcast. There's this change just in verse 7. He starts praying, oh God, oh hear me and listen to what I said. David wants that God would turn around and hear him. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. How different that is when we go forward to the New Testament, when we see the life of Jesus, when we see the pious leaders that were around in those days. Do you remember the Pharisees that stood out in the street corners, and they declared aloud their prayers so that everybody could see them and everybody could applaud them and say, wow, you are such a pious man of God, and listen to your prayer. You're using such wonderful words, and Jesus says, don't be like that. And so, here, David's echoing that. He's not praying out that people will hear. He's saying here, God, hear me. He's speaking to one person. Do you see what David's saying here? Encouraging us to pray to this audience of one is the phrase that's been used so, so often. Hear, O God, when I cry aloud. And verse 8, he says, you have said, seek my face. So he's saying, God, you have said to me, and these are the words then of God he's using, seek my face. And that seek is plural. And that's important for us because what actually God is saying to David, using a plural seek, is, David, it's not just you that has to seek my face, but you are representing all my people. And so the seek is plural, so that all the people of God will seek his face. Are you grasping what the psalmist is saying here? He's encouraging all the people of God through David. He's the conduit to seek his face. Now, why would that come up? You've read, I'm sure, many, many times how often it talks, particularly the psalmists, about seeking the face of God. Have you? Have you seen that in, in some of the Scriptures? Yeah? Some people have. Uh, that some people, they say, what would they say? 
Have you seen in the Scriptures how often God talks about seeking the face, or you'll find the judges and the prophets talk about it, the psalmists talk about it. It's talked about in Deuteronomy as well. You familiar with that? Do you know why it is? Go way back into the Old Testament. There's what we call the high priestly blessing. That mightn't strike a chord with you, but when I tell you what it is, I'm sure you'll be able to connect with it. The Lord bless you and keep you. Do you know those words? The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His gaze or lift His countenance, as one of the old translations, towards you and give you shalom, give you peace. And this was to be given by the high priest to the people. And so the people would have heard, okay, and the people are you, you would have heard, we want the face of God to shine upon us. And so all the people of the Old Testament, all the Hebrews would have wanted and desired that God's face would shine upon them. Here's the question for you. Do you want God's face to shine upon you? Do you desire intimacy with God? Or is He just a Santa Claus in the sky that you ask for the odd good thing every now and again or when you're in trouble? The people of God wanted the face of God constantly to shine upon them, to smile upon them. And that's part of the high priestly blessing. And the Hebrew word for blessing is the baruch. And baruch in, in Hebrew actually literally means to kneel forward and to reach out. And what the Scriptures are teaching us is that God wants to kneel and graciously reach out to us and smile His face upon us. Are you, are you grasping what the psalmist is saying? God wants to smile on His people, to provide them with blessing. And so that's what the psalmist is saying here. Seek my face. And then he says, my heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Here's what Spurgeon says about this. He says, a smile from the Lord is the greatest of comforts. His frown, the worst of ills. Smile from the Lord is the greatest of comforts. His frown, the worst of ills. You see what Spurgeon's encouraging us to do? It's exactly the same as the psalmist is encouraging us to do. It's exactly the same as the Old Testament and the New Testament encourages us to do. It's to seek God's face shining upon us, smiling as it were. Everybody loves a smile, don't they? But we don't really like a frown. Do you want God to smile upon you or do you want God to frown upon you? Seek His face, says the psalmist here. Verse 10, uh, he says, for my father and mother have forsaken me. It's a little bit uh, difficult to understand that. We, we're not 100% sure. Is he talking about his own mom and dad? Have they gone away? Uh, have they forsaken him in some way? We, we don't really just understand that. But what I can tell you, and I shared with you earlier on today, is that many, many mothers and fathers do forsake their children around the world today because they've become followers of Jesus. I was with some people just two weeks ago uh, in another country. And the believer there that I was with was able to share with me that 
he has spoken to one of his brothers in the last 20 years. This is his biological brother. Has never spoken to his mom and dad. They've disowned him completely. And the rest of his family have disowned him as well and won't speak to him. And he has tried to reach out. And was it because he stole the family inheritance? Was it because he burned down the family home? Was it because he went round the local city that he lives in and discredited and slandered his whole family? Absolutely not, no. The one reason that this all has happened and that he has been disinherited, if you like, from his family is because he's now a follower of Jesus. He left Islam and is following Isa al-Masih, Jesus Messiah. And so he's had to be forsaken. And yet, is his countenance down? Is his spirit sad? This is the most joyful believer I've ever met in my life who never stops smiling, who's had a heart attack and laughs about it, who has been put in prison and laughs about it, who has been hunted by not only the authorities but by communities that he's gone into and laughs about it. Not in a mocking way, but in just a way that God's in control of my life. What can mortal man do to me? You see what David says at the very start there in verse 1? The Lord is a stronghold in my life. Whom shall I be afraid of? And that's what this brother is saying as well, even though he has been taken away by various different people. Look at verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. That just means uh, in progress. It doesn't mean take me away from difficulties, etc., because difficulties are part of the Christian life in, in some form, whatever way it comes. So, be prepared for it. Peter tells us that. Do not be surprised when these things occur to you. Okay, it's very different from what we hear on many, many uh, platforms at the minute. And it seems as if the psalmist is almost about to lose his life. He talks again about false witnesses who have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. Do you see what he's saying here in this verse again? Remember we talked earlier about the slanderers who eat up his flesh, and they're doing the will of the enemy, not of God. They're doing the will of the devil. And he comes back to it here again in verse 11. These false witnesses. The false witnesses were the people who lied against David. And don't underestimate the tongue and how powerful it is, and lies that go out, slander that goes out, can and often does destroy a person. Worse than taking their head off or chopping an arm off or whatever, you can destroy a person completely with these lips. And so David's reminding us here again, these false witnesses, they're false. They're of the enemy. They're not of God. Be careful how you use your lips. And then finally, the final thing is just to look then at the assurance that he has. So, we've seen the confidence that he has at the very start, the first sort of six verses. Then we look at the prayer where he really opens up intimately to God. I want to, I long for your beauty, oh God, I want you to hear me. And then finally, the last two verses, verse 13, verse 14. Look at verse 13, beautiful verse. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The psalmist 
almost holds out like a naked faith, if you like, after saying all that he said, and he's just talked about the oppressors, he's just talked about the false witnesses, and yet he says, but I believe that in the land of the living, okay, not just in, in heaven, although he knows that that in the afterlife will be good, but the here and now, the land of the living, I will see the goodness of God. How can he say that he'll see the goodness of God whenever he's been attacked by Saul and had to run for his life, when his son rises up and tries to take the crown from him and David has to flee and run away? How can David then say, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living because his assurance is in God? You see what he's saying? Trust and belief. See, scattered throughout the, the Scriptures, don't we talk about idolatry? And again, I think in the West, we often uh, mistranslate or misunderstand what it means by idolatry. So, if I ask you the question, when you see in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's teaching, the talk of idol worship or idolatry, what does that mean to you? I don't want you to shout out. What does that mean to you? Think about it for a second. What does it mean to worship an idol, to be involved in idolatry. And I think most of us, particularly in the Old Testament, think that it was all about a big object, maybe made of stone, maybe made of wood, maybe made of metal at the front that people went up and they bowed down to. And there is a little bit of that, yes. But that bit of stone, that bit of wood, behind that was a demonic spirit. And it was that spirit that people put their trust and faith in. We read so often about Baal, who was a demon god of the Old Testament, but he was the god of fertility, so fertile for the land. So they needed the land. They needed to grow crops, okay? They didn't have Asda. They didn't have Tesco. They didn't have all those sorts of things. They had to grow, and so they looked to Baal often to make their ground fertile so they had plenty of food. They trusted a demon for all their sustenance. Do you get that? It's not necessarily about bowing down to a wooden object. That might have been involved. It's the trust that they put in that object for whatever. And so David's saying here, my trust is in you, God, that I will see your goodness in the land of the living. And he finishes off here by saying, wait on the Lord. Wait for the Lord, he says, verse 14. Be strong and let your heart take courage, echoing Joshua. And then he says, wait for the Lord. If you see in the Scriptures a, a certain words used twice, echoed, if you like, then it's time to take note. They're there for a reason. And so David here is saying, wait on the Lord. No, 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 no. Wait on the Lord. Do you understand? He, he's emphasizing wait on the Lord. How many of us, put your hands up, uh, find it easy to wait? How many of us are okay for patience? No hands? It's really hard, isn't it, to wait? Yeah, look in the Scriptures how many times God says, wait on the Lord. Be patient. And I'm talking to myself here. Patience is a difficult thing. 
And yet God reminds us again and again, as David does, to wait on the Lord because he will give us the strength. He will give us what we need. He will allow us to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. I hope you're encouraged by that little word just this morning. I want to bring, just as we close here, a story that I hope reflects a little bit on that and I hope connects with you guys here as well. We've looked at confidence, prayer, and assurance of the psalmist. And that psalmist perhaps was about a thousand, maybe BC. Okay, we're living in 2022. And yet it's the same thing that God wants to say through this psalmist to the believers in 2022. In Northern Ireland, but also I want to mention very quickly Ukraine as well, which has obviously been on our TV screens uh, an awful lot. We have a, a partner in Ukraine. We've had him working there and ministering in Eastern Europe for perhaps 24 years, long before I uh, was ever involved in, in this particular mission. And just when the uh, war started there between Ukraine and the, uh, Russia, he decided he was going to stay. Uh, this man is now in his, in his 60s, and he said, I want to stay and I want to pastor my people. But he was persuaded to leave and is now residing in the UK just for this period of time. This church that you see on the screen there is Grace Church Baptist in Ukraine. And the reason I wanted to highlight that for you is because on the 21st of September this year, just a few weeks ago, the authorities went to this Baptist church in Ukraine, the Russian authorities this is, they burst in through the doors. The pastor was leading the worship. There were a number, I don't know how many, but there were a number had met in that particular building. And every single person was arrested. The pastor was taken off. The people were all let go then shortly after that, but the pastor was taken and put into prison. The church now has been closed, uh, and no one is allowed to go and worship in that church today. That's in the Ukraine. That's just on the edge of Europe. That's pretty close to us, isn't it? Baptist Church. What about today if through the doors right now the authorities come in and everyone's arrested and your pastor is taken off and put in prison? How would you cope? Would you cope? That's what it's like for many believers today around the world. And it could happen in the UK very, very easily. It's not that long ago they were burning pastors at the stake in England. It could very easily return. And we need to take encouragement and be wise about what we read in the Scriptures. I'd love you to pray for the pastor of that church. It's Grace Church. Okay, that's hopefully something that you can remember. Please do pray for the pastor of that church and also for the flock, if you like, the congregation. Because whenever the pastor is taken away, very often people become confused. People maybe go elsewhere. They maybe fall away from their faith. So pray that their faith would rise up and be strengthened. And that's the one thing I want to leave with you as an encouragement for you if you want to pray for believers, if you want to remember those in prison as if you were there and those who suffer as if you were suffering with them, is pray for them. But here's the one thing, if I can give you a little piece of advice to pray for. Don't pray. 
God take them all out of that country and put them into the West where they'll have freedom. Okay, that's, that's not the prayer that they want, and it's not the prayer that I would encourage you to pray for them. Pray that within their suffering, okay, whether that be intolerance, discrimination, imprisonment, or whatever, whatever it looks like, pray that God would strengthen them, okay, that their faith would not fail them, and that they in turn would be able to show love, grace, and mercy to their enemies. If you knew of the amount of times I've heard of people being arrested and going into the prison, and a prison cell becomes a church, a chapel, and how many people come to know Jesus in the prisons, and how many prison pools are turned into baptismal pools. I met one pastor just two, three years ago uh, in Asia who had just been released from prison 10 days prior to that, and he was able to tell me about how they beat him and tried to get him to renounce his faith, and he wouldn't. And out of that, God brought dozens and dozens of inmates to know Jesus, and the pool was turned into a baptismal pool. And he showed me the photographs of all the new baptisms. And now that he'd got out, he didn't forget them. He remembered them, and he was going back every Friday to disciple, to encourage them on a continuous basis. That's what it's like for some believers uh, around the world. Don't feel sorry for them. Be encouraged. God's building His church, okay? But there are many, many who are suffering today. Let's remember them and lift them up in strength. I have magazines at the back. Please do take them. They're free of charge, and there are some books there as well. I'm just going to close in prayer, and then Pastor Steve's just going to come up and close and finish the rest of the service. Father God, we adore you for who you are. You are light. You are salvation. You are our stronghold, our refuge, somewhere, someone that we can run to in times of trouble. And we echo the words of the psalmist here, as David says, I long to see the beauty of the Lord, to dwell in His house. And may that intimacy be our passion and our desire, deep in our hearts that we desire this also. Father, may we be sincere in all that we do. And so, let us echo His words as He says, hear our cries, O God, and allow us to see Your face, the face of the Creator God smiling upon His people, shining upon His people. And Father, though there are many things in the world that will get us down, And there will be many here, Father God, who are struggling at this time through one thing or another. Help us still, Father, to have the assurance that David had that we will see the goodness of God, the goodness of Jehovah in the land of the living as we wait on you. Give us patience to wait. It's not easy. We confess, O God. Hear the cries of your people. Allow this fellowship to continue to be a light into the city, that people would be drawn to that light, might find salvation, and might discover a refuge, a stronghold. 
And we pray, Father, all these things in the mighty name of Jesus, Messiah. Amen. Thank you so much, Stephen, for serving us in that way. We're going to close by standing together to sing this wonderful hymn that calls us uh, all to our own place within this great work of God. Let's stand together and sing. Thank you, Father, that we can know you as our light and salvation through Jesus, the light of the world. And now may you, our great God, bless us and keep us. May you make your face to shine on us and be gracious unto us. Lord, lift up your countenance upon us and give us your peace in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please do be seated. Do stick around if you're able to. There'll be some refreshments.